If you're a brand in 2024, you can no longer afford to not be a content business as well. You have to not only create a great product that people can transact with or show up to, but you also have to have a really strong content arm. And so for us, our perspective has always been, if you drive great attention through great content that serves value to whatever audience, whether that's entertainment or inspiration or just comedic, whatever it may be, then you'd have a greater advantage than the run-of-the-mill brand who is not engaging in content and just focus on selling product. Welcome to season four of Perpetual, where you'll get the hottest takes and insights on what's happening in the constantly shifting world of media and marketing. I'm Adam Ryan. Let's go. All righty. Michael, thanks for having me in your studio and coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I always feel, I was saying just a minute ago off air, I always feel a little bit strange being in this seat because I'm used to being in that seat. And I'm used to asking the questions. So if I start interviewing, just cut me off. And you know, people probably are more interested to hear from you than me. So I think it's a, <laughs> it's perfect. And you know, one thing that when we look at this season that we've been doing, the types of companies are pretty wide ranging. And there's not a lot in Austin, first of all. Uh, so love that I could drive down the street. But also, you're the only podcast network, uh, kind of at least from the original start of of Dear Media that we're having on. And I'd love to hear what was the initial vision of like why. Did you start the way that you started and what's your vision kind of going forward? Sure. I think, you know, it's interesting when I talk about the company, Dear Media, the gut reaction for many, and I, I think what is apparent from the outside is that we do a lot in the podcast space, right? Like we produce close to 70 shows at this point. We are labeled as, I guess, one of the bigger podcast networks. But my perspective into this space from the beginning was to go back a little bit, my wife, Lauren, and I come from a digital background. I was in a commerce space, either creating my own commerce businesses or at one point having an agency helping early D2C businesses scale. And I just really fell in love with audio as a medium to drive engagement. I felt like if people would tune in and listen, there was a very high likelihood that they would go do more. When I say more, that could mean showing up to an event in person, buying a book, transacting on a commerce opportunity maybe participating in a subscription, whatever it may be. I just felt that if you could carry an audience and keep their attention in an audio format, you could do so much more. And so our point of entry into media per se was audio. But what I do when I talk about your media now is to say like, we're really just a modern media company of the future that happened to choose audio as a proving ground to do much more, whether that's in commerce or live events or video or whatever it may be. Um, but from the outside perspective, I think some people think we're just limited to audio, which we're definitely not. Yeah. You've done events now. Last year, you threw a big event. Uh, we're going to talk about video because I think today your discoverability on TikTok is like better than every media company should be studying what you guys are doing there. But take a step back. You know, you essentially talked about the content to commerce play of which our friends at the Churning Group and others have all talked about for a little while. You guys took it to the next level on consumer in a lot of ways. I think your wife is one of the best content creators in the world, but you elevated that playbook right across the board to so many. What inspired that to get started from the very beginning? Besides the action of this can make a great business, what was like the inspiration for doing audio first? Well, like I said earlier, I, I looked at the space and I was early in commerce and I saw how difficult it was getting for many of these brands to stay competitive. A lot of new money came in, a lot of big money came in, and a lot of the early D2C businesses started to have to compete with what I would call brand awareness businesses, right? People that have our Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies that have much bigger budgets 
that don't need to measure their success directly from a conversion online that really just need more awareness to either drive more foot traffic to a store or just more awareness of their brand in, in general. And so when we got involved in audio, I saw this as the new frontier to drive real engagement. I say real engagement, I mean, the, the conversions that we see across the board in the audio space are phenomenal and, and are so much more organic in some ways than just creating an ad online. And so we kind of saw the, the space shifting and we saw a lot of success with the brands that we were involved with, whether we were invested in them or partnered with them, seeing a ton of new growth, new audience development, new customer development through audio. And so our perspective was, and it still is, that if you're a brand in 2024, you can no longer afford to not be a content business as well. You have to not only create a great product that people can transact with or show up to, but you also have to have a really strong content arm. And so for us, our perspective has always been, if you drive great attention through great content that serves value to whatever audience, whether that's entertainment or inspiration or just comedic, really, whatever it may be, then you'd have a greater advantage than the run-of-the-mill brand who is not engaging in content and just focus on selling product. And so that was our first perspective. And I think we did it in the reverse where most people were setting up a brand or a business first and then trying to figure out content. And our idea was, let's get the flywheel of content going first and then categorically look around and see what makes sense from a, from a commerce perspective. Essentially, you tested product market fit numerous ways through your advertisers, pushing product, you hearing feedback, hey, the conversion rate's incredible. You got to build your content that probably you enjoyed doing as well, right? Like you nailed that so many of these, so many brands and media companies today are saying product first, content strategy, once we raise money, do it later. And then it's like round peg square hole of like, we're kind of forced to do this thing. No one has a passion for it. This isn't great. You guys went the other way. But the the hard part, and I think what holds a lot of people up for that is the kind of monetization of that, the sustainability of it, the cost of it. Today, you have a beautiful studio. Everything is being produced really well. For those that are like, maybe I should do this the right way in the beginning, what did that look like for you guys? If you go to the Skinny Confidential YouTube page and you try to find episode one of our podcast, you will see what the early days of this looked like. There was no fancy studio. There was no team. There was terrible lighting and a terrible camera. We had no idea what we were doing. We were, Lauren and I, who I host, the sh- my wife who I host the show with, for those that are unfamiliar, were interrupting each other. There was an echo in the background. My sister was asking us questions kind of off camera because we couldn't afford all the, the cameras. And that was all strange. But I leave it up there to show any creator or business operator how early something can be and, and, and how limited it can be from a resource standpoint in the beginning to what it can turn into, right? So we're, we're obviously sitting here in a beautiful studio in Austin, Texas, or half the Dear Media team is headquartered. The other half is in LA where we have other studios. But I point out that Dear Media, if you really look at the inception, really, really go back. My wife started a blog back when people said, what the hell is a blog? Then together we created a podcast. We had a Zoom recorder that I bought off Amazon for how much are those? Two or 300 bucks, yeah. some poor mics. And we just you know, took some questions from the audience and started answering them. It was very organic. I mean, I remember the days coming out to Austin to interview people like Ryan Holiday and carrying a suitcase full of Zoom equipment and mics. Nobody cared. And everyone said, what, what are you guys up to? This was, I mean, I remember creating assets, Lauren and I, for social. Our video team would, would help us create these assets where we would show people not where to go listen to our podcast, but actually where to open the podcast app on their phone. And so early days, but 
over time with the strong vision and when we saw the engagement, we said, okay, like this can turn into much more than just our show. And this is going to be a real driver of business and commerce, but really like you can get started with such a kernel of an idea and such limited, like, that's the beautiful thing about the creator economy is with an iPhone, with a little bit of equipment, like you can produce and get great content out there. Uh, you just have to be willing to get yourself out there and put the work in. And the consistency of it. Like I actually went back to go do my homework for this. And not only that kind of glimpse at that first one, but I mean, you guys have been consistently producing shows for years, even when maybe ads went down, downturn, no matter what you guys stuck through it. And I think that's also in the audio podcast format. I've always felt like there's no like hacky way to grow. Just impossible. I have a friend named Ed Lattimore who's on Twitter and he wrote something the other day about basically stop looking for the growth hack or the, or the quick fix as soon as you realize that it's really effing hard and that you have to put the work in, the sooner you can get started in doing that. Um, to your point, Lauren and I made $0, $0.0. It cost us money in the first two years of the show. This was at a time also when there was not a ton of buyers in the space. And so we just did it, one, out of a labor of love, and two, believing that one day it would turn into something more meaningful. But to your point, in the eight years that we've done the show in over 650 or so episodes, there has never been a week that we've not delivered a show ever, no matter what was going on, no Most matter what. amazing stat by far. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, what I tell creators now running Dear Media, because I get to wear the hat of creator doing our show, but executive running Dear Media, is that if you think you're just going to jump into this medium and create 20 shows and make millions of dollars, you've got another thing coming. And I always get a little bit nervous when you read about these stories of some of these shows that have skyrocketed to prominence out of nowhere, because that is the 0.0001% of what I see on the other side. It's the people that can, that stay consistent for a long period of time that from my view, and especially now seeing Dear Media's numbers on the shows we produce that have the most success as, as creators or brands in, in this space. People don't want to associate compounding success with content because it feels like you're only as good as your last one, which you are with most things that compound, but that consistency actually covers up that bad episode, that mistake. If you just keep going, it compounds over time. And the lottery ticket winners is what I call them of like, oh, you got lucky. Beast retweeted you, did something. Yep. That's as good as winning the lottery. Uh, and like focusing on that is like not the path to actually build something sustainable. Yeah. And what I try to do, at least on our show with Lauren is I try to share, Lauren calls it astronaut syndrome, and I'm sure she didn't coin it, but you see a lot of creators that quote unquote go viral or have a big moment, or maybe they come out of nowhere and they're having a really big year. What I think is better and more sustainable, not only for creators, but for entrepreneurs is a slow, steady growth over time. So that one, when you start to exhibit success, you really can appreciate it and understand that it was hard one. And two, like, I think it's a curse when somebody out of nowhere, and this is maybe for people that are sitting there hoping to go viral and have this moment, when all of a sudden you shoot to the moon and then your following year is not that year and you start to go down, a lot of people don't know how to manage that down cycle. With Lauren and I, we've managed the ups and downs for a really long time. I mean, the podcast has been eight years, but you know, the content business has been since 2009. So, I mean, we're, I guess, 15 years, we're older, and not to age us, but we're in the space that's, that's older, I guess. And, um, we really, really appreciate any of the success we've had because we know what it's taken. And um, someone came on the show the other day. It's like, wow, it's so amazing. You're interviewing Scarlett Johansson. Or, or, and that, that's who it was. And I was like, yeah, but did you see that's like episode number 610? Yeah. And I think people missed that lesson where it's like, it wasn't, it didn't start that way. Um, and it it's taken a lot of 
time to build up to um, those kind of guests and those kind of people. And it's also been, to your point earlier, like not every episode has been a home run. And when you start to see numbers go up and down and sometimes they're, you're really in a groove and then sometimes the audience is pushing back saying, we really don't like that. It's like, I want to work with the people as a Dear Media executive that are able to weather those ups and downs and stay consistent and stay motivated um, and keep pushing. Because that's just, you know, as an entrepreneur yourself, that's what business is. That's what life is. The numbers is an interesting thing with podcasts. I I have more of a newsletter kind of web background, somewhat more predictable. You know, we we jumped in the audio space. We have eight shows. You were on 70, so I'm here to mostly just learn. But I think anecdotal feedback from audience, I've always taken super serious more than the numbers. If someone's writing me back and telling me this in a newsletter format, it, it means something particularly. In audio, it's been so interesting because some of the times you're like, I, as someone who consumes content all day, I'm like, that episode was great. And the numbers just didn't show it. And then other times the reviews, you're like, me and I like, and it's one of these formats. I haven't figured out what I should pay more attention to either the data trend lines or the anecdotal feedback. How do you guys think about that? Oh, it's changed over time. And if you listen to episodes of the past, you might hear me say, we put the audience first and then the brand second and the guest third. You know who honestly we put first now of doing this well is we put ourselves first. And what I mean by that is if Lauren and I aren't motivated and excited to talk to somebody on whatever subject we're talking to, we are not going to show up very well as creators. And I see so many people, again, they're trying to either appease a brand to get more deals or they're trying, or they see, oh, the audience really liked when I did this one thing. You see this, especially in politics, which we won't go so far into. And what they do is they start kind of pandering. And for me, it's like, I think about this as if you're going to build a personal brand or a show that's attached to you personally, that has to be able to stretch far into the future. And so I have to keep integrity with myself and so does Lauren and we have to be authentic with ourselves. And that's going to mean sometimes that we deliver something that the audience says, why would you do that? Or why would you be interested in this conversation? Or why would you venture that way? But there's no way to stay consistent as a creator without being excited about the show you're doing. So Lauren and I are excited to interview everyone we talk to on our show because we've, you know, and this is, this may mean sometimes it's somebody nobody's ever heard of, or it's a subject that people would be like, why would they do that? But it's what keeps us in the seat and motivated as creators to keep going. And I think sometimes you see people burn out because they either start doing something for a brand or they start doing something because an audience expects them to do it, or they start doing something because they see numbers ticking up in a direction that they think is going to be beneficial. And for us, that's all great and part of the business, but what does it look like in 10, 15, 20 years? If you're going to burn out in a year because you're sick of doing it or you don't want to be aligned with that certain brand or voice or mission, you know, Lauren and I just, we try not to pigeonhole ourselves and to be what is expected. You know, yeah. like I think it would be very easy for us to see, oh, when we talk about that, the audience really loves it. And when we alienate this group, this audience really gets behind it. And to me, that is like the laziest form of content creation. And it's why I sometimes struggle watching some pe- like political pundits is because all they're doing is pandering to a base that they know they're going to rile up and, and build on. Yeah. Well, and you're building a company. This is why going content first matters so much. Because if you go content second, you naturally are going to have a really difficult time not pandering to what you've already built. And so you're going to be forced to go, well, I know like we would love to do that. Our audience would love to cover that. But like, that's actually like kind of a competitor of ours or that it's like, you're just, you're now not doing the best strategy to bring it forward. And 
I think that's what put you all so far ahead is that Lauren and you scream authenticity, like every second of it just bleeds Thank out you. of the screen. That is actually, I love listening to people's first seasons of anything because they're almost always themselves. It's that like third, fourth, fifth time around where they start to see a little bit of money. Brand deals say, hey, why is your audience 60% male when like, I thought you were mostly female and you start to like change things. I've seen it all happen. And now you're like, why this format totally change? Yeah, there's no different hat that I put on throughout the day. I don't like be like, hey, here I am on the mic with a radio voice yeah. and then go into an executive meeting and I'm somebody different. Like Lauren and I know we are not actors and we are not, and we're definitely, if we try to be, we're definitely not good. Yeah. So our strength is basically being ourselves at all times. That's going to mean we alienate a lot of people. I know we're not going to be for everybody uh, and that's okay. But I don't want to live with the anxiety of trying to put on a front or trying to be something or someone that I'm not at all times. It's much easier for me to be exactly how I am with you on mic off. And I find that it's a much more stress-free life for me because I don't have to feel like I'm performing ever. And again, a lot of times people don't like the things that come out of my wife's mouth or my mouth um, because we're we're not necessarily um, ones to hold back how we really feel and how we really think. But my hope is that people may discover us and say, you know what? I really don't agree or I didn't like that delivery, but there is no bullshit there. That is who they are. That's what they believe. Don't know why they believe it, but like this is if that's the conclusion they came to, at least we know it's authentic and it's truthful. And I feel like that is something that we can continue to build upon for the rest of our careers and the rest of our lives, where we all I'm not gonna call anyone out, but you start to see these people that go down a route, whether it's through success or to someone, or they think they need to be someone. And I think that leads to a lot of unhappiness. And burnout, right? That to your point, that stress of like. I gotta put this face on and I gotta like think through how am I gonna do like all of a sudden that's not just like us having conversation with mics in front of us. Instead, it's like I have to perform and performance is exhausting. That's also where that burnout comes in when you don't set up a system like that. And turning that a little bit into media companies building with audio, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes execs make with their talent is saying perform this way, not realizing the exhaustion that comes with it too. I, w- I was joking with our board the other day and I said, you know, thank God 2020 to 24 was such an easy time for operators to build businesses. It's obviously been a lot yeah. going on between the pandemic and some of the political strife and some of the social strife and the market being down. It was, a, you know, there's a lot of stuff that came my way that you're not trained for. Like, what is political correctness as a modern media company? How do you manage hybrid environments? And for me, I was managing a company in California who's also got a foothold in Texas. Those are very different policies. What does that look like? But what I made a firm decision on as the head of a company that's producing what I hope to be authentic media from the direct voices of these creators is I said, we will never come in and tell people what to do. We'll never come in and tell people what to think. I will never take content down if it's even if it's something we disagree with. Like we obviously look to make sure that we're working with people that we feel are morally sound and that you know we want to be aligned with. But who am I to come in and tell people what to think or say or how to behave when like it's there? You know, this is their show, and I think a lot of companies are struggling with that now, especially media companies. Right? They are trying to either you know appease one side and not the other. They're trying to tell people what they can do or not do, and I don't think that that's what a modern consumer base wants. I think it's like. Tell me what you really think. I may hate it. I disagree with it. But like, I actually, I still want to know the people that are getting in trouble are the ones where the audience knows they're not being truthful with how they really feel or how they really think. And I think that's why a lot of these companies are losing ratings or losing attention. It's because people want real, whether they like it or whether they agree with the message or not, they at least want 
the real voice to come through. I was had someone ask me uh, in a previous episode, you say modern media company, how they asked me, how do I define that? And I was struggling at the time on the spot to like come up with a good answer. And I was like, maybe it's revenue. Maybe it's like creator personalities. And later when I thought about it, I reached out to them over email and told them this, but it's actually editorial control and like letting your talent be your talent. Mm -hmm. And that means you can still filter and hire for who you want to your point and all those things. But like what absolutely is failing in the old media is that they're not allowing their talent to put out what they believe is best without four lines of editing and editorial boards. And people just see right through it. And even people that listen and like it see right through it. And I think like politics so easy, but you know, there's a congressman in the Carolinas that created a TikTok that's gone viral and he just like speaks right to the audience. And you can see in his comments, it's like, hey, I'm a lifelong Republican, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I just appreciate the honesty. And like everybody is craving that. And I don't care if it's, I don't care if it's about beauty, fashion, politics, or like business, that like real authenticity, if you're not setting the company up to do that and you're talented in that, you're going to fall to the wayside and you're going to have less success in the long term as well. They're failing to realize that the source of success in any business is the source. And what I mean by the source is if you're a media company, the source of your success is by creating great media and great content that people actually care about, that they trust, that they feel compelled to tune into. And what they're doing is they're trying to appease advertisers probably because there's a big bottom line. And so with that, they're they're not allowing their talent to do what they need to do because there's maybe messaging that some of those advertisers may find counter or they are pandering to a base that they don't want to lose. But they're, they're missing the point. Like for me, you build leverage in business by building real leverage. And to me, the leverage is having best in class content and talent that people actually care about. All of the other stuff, and listen, we have a lot of great advertisers, a lot of great partners, that comes with building stuff that people care about. I don't sit around and be like, man, we really have to go after this type of advertiser. We have to get this type of business. All I think about all day long is how do I continue to produce stuff that an audience really cares about? That attention is what drives all the commerce and the rest of the stuff. I always tell talent when they come, I said, if your first question is, how do I make money? You're not going to make money. If your first question should be, how do I build an audience and serve them with stuff that they care about every single week, every single day, consistently over and over again? The rest of the stuff is all we'll take care of. And, and we have a great sales team, a great partnership team, but they're, they're tapping into the attention that we're garnishing on the product, which in this case is the content that we're producing that people actually feel drawn to. Well, and you know, there's a conversational leverage, right? You need those advertisers more than they need you. And like having great content actually can provide that answer. And there's no, and I know, like, listen, this maybe our advertisers aren't going to like this. There is no shortage of advertisers. There are millions and millions of advertisers looking to reach audiences that people actually care about, right? Like, to your point, we we both kind of need each other. But if you're a single brand, for example, and you are reliant on reaching a very specific audience, call it like Dear Media's audience, do you need me more or do I need you more? If you're X beauty brand or X wellness brand? That's a question that I think a lot of these CMOs have to ask each other. Like, does Dear Media and this female aligned content really need this one beauty brand to survive? Or does that one beauty brand need this audience to survive? And I think about that all the time. And to me, with that perspective, it keeps me very focused on making sure that the content always comes first. And and the rest will take care of itself there. I like, and not a believer of you build it, they will come because it takes effort and strategy and work and feedback and customers. But with advertising, it actually is one of those things that I've seen up close, like 
in the last couple of years, I've seen inbound advertising for our top content because marketers are like, I have, I, this, I, I please. Mm-hmm. And then renewal rates are there because it performs. And now that leverage does shift, right? It's like, Hey, I missed all the deadlines. You edited our copy, like where it sucked. We didn't like it. You're a bad partner. We're going to not work with you. Doing that is the most relieving feeling in the world. 100%. And you can't do it if your content's crap. I see a lot of, I guess what you would say is like maybe less modern or maybe legacy media businesses. And if they're struggling, it's likely because they weren't quick enough to recognize that consumer attention shifts and they were slow to take those platforms seriously. What I, it's always funny. Like I am not in the business of trying to convince people to buy into the creator economy or into podcasts. And I never really try to do that. Whenever I, whenever I encounter a brand that's like, well, explain, like, how do you measure this? Or why would why would we focus on this instead of this? Like, if that's the first question, you're already late. You're already missing the boat. You're already missing the fact that you can't go on Instagram or TikTok anymore without seeing people. I've had, when you would go to your newsfeed right now, how many times do you see people doing what we're doing right now talking like that? There's a reason, right? This is, this is where consumer attention lives. If you're a marketer and you're waiting for a quote unquote, a metric to prove this out, then you're going to do the same thing that happened in the YouTube world, the same thing that happened in the, in the Instagram world, the same thing that happened on the influencer world. By the time you start spending, you're competing with all of the biggest spenders, which you're going to get way less for your dollars. So for me, it's like, I would rather be early with the early businesses that recognize it first, as opposed to trying to p- convince the people um, that are going to be late anyways. Well, and as much as advertisers have to evolve and kind of listen to media companies of what that evolution is, one of the things that I've noticed you all have done, I mean, you've always been consistent on YouTube, but I can't, maybe it's my algorithm, I can't scroll TikTok and now not see you all. How has video started to really change how the company is performing? Discoverability has gone up tremendously by using video. What I would say is that there are still there's still a disconnect between short form and long form audiences, right? And, and to me, for us, long form is still the proving ground for true engagement. I think to get a clip to go viral on TikTok is easier than getting a podcast episode to go viral. And I don't want to say you know they're they're both difficult, yeah. but sometimes you will have an episode clip go viral and you won't necessarily see that correlation to the long form. Sometimes you'll see that happen and then the episode will spike. So it's really kind of difficult to say. What I will say is from a branding perspective and for getting people to be more aware of us as a company and realize there's a greater offering, it's been you know incredible because to your point, anytime someone's on a mic and there's a Dear Media studio in the background or a Dear Media brand, I think they may think, oh, like, Lauren and Michael have a show with Dear Media, but they don't realize there's 70 other properties. And so it, it's been really helpful in, in creating a much greater network effect. And when we sign new shows, one thing that I've found exciting is that we see a lot of that viewership or listenership jump anywhere from 25 to 50% just being plugged into an aligned audience. And I don't think a lot of companies are taking advantage of brand in that way. It's like, hey, let me sign as much content as possible, but there's no there's no shared alignment or shared audience to say, okay, I could start with the parenting show and then go to the comedy and go to the wellness and like have it all kind of be from the same consumer base. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You shared that stat with me uh, before about the 25 to 50% jump once someone joins your network. And it was like why I wanted to have this conversation because there are a lot of, you know, I had the Scott Haven CEO of Bloomberg on, they're doing a lot more podcasts today. 
everyone's kind of creating a podcast network at these larger media companies, whether they call it that or not, right? But they're not, in my opinion, really taking a strategic approach of like, how do we align our audience where these actually build each other? And then our advertisers can share that success. We can share across this network. It makes the whole business more efficient. When you're choosing the strategy of the content that you want. So we'll talk about the talent and the creators separately. But when you're choosing, hey, this is like a show type of show that we want. What are you using to inform that decision to that to give yourself the probability for that jump? So it's funny because we've had such our blinders on building this. But what what the directive was from the beginning as a company is that we have to be focused. And when I say focused, we have a broad audience we want to speak to, which is primarily Gen Z and millennial female audiences, right? When Lauren and I joined another company, we realized it was like us and a wrestling show and an athletic show and a political show and a show from The Bachelorette. And and I remember just looking at the space from an advertising background saying like, there is no shared audience. There's no shared affinity. We're all under quote unquote, the same company umbrella, but there is no network effect here. And there is no a media buyer that's going to come in and say, I want to buy a collection of shows. It was like, you're going to have to cherry pick and you might as well not have a quote unquote network effect. So for us, we decided to stay very focused on these audiences and we've turned away shows that are great shows, huge shows in their own right, but fall outside of the focus that we're catering to. And the reason we've done that is for us to be able to continue to offer that network effect and to continue to offer our partners that reach across this focus demo we need to stay extremely focused. And to your point, there's a lot of companies that are reading headlines about podcasts now, and they're just like, we got to have a podcast arm. And they're signing everything under the sun based on reach or demo, whatever it is, but they're not being focused in their approach. And so whenever I see other people enter the space and all of a sudden they announce four or five shows and they're all over the place and they don't share an audience, I'm like, well, you've just kind of missed the point of putting it all and aggregating it together, right? Like there's, you don't have that effect. Um, And from a leverage standpoint, you might as well just be independently producing all of it. Um, And so I think it's a lack of focus and it informs kind of also how we think categorically about going after shows or talent. Like if we don't for this show, for example, if I didn't feel confident that it would plug into this audience and that we couldn't demonstrate that network effect for you, I would say, hey, there's probably better places. Yeah. But again, I think that there's the strategy of sign everything and everyone. And then there's the the focus. The focus is, I don't want to say it's better, but it it creates a different effect when it comes to growing audiences, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, Workweek made that mistake in 21. I went wide and I was like, oh shit, this is like our costs are high. Performance is not as great. We shrunk down. 16 to basically eight, everything goes up. Yeah. Uh, it's collectively better, better quality, better distribution, but also better network effects. And it's an easy uh, kind of, first off, the barrier to create content to the point of getting started is very low. Mm-hmm. And I think operators are a little bit falling into the trap of like, hey, that person started a show, let's sign up. It's, you yep. don't also know their intentions and all that. Do you use kind of a thought process there? Because I heard someone say this to, in a different podcast, but they use their advertisers as a guiding light about that strategy of, hey, are there any shows that you listen to that you like? How have you guys kind of like discovered these alignment? Uh, Has it been through just referrals and you guys have a big brand now, but thinking about early days when we first met four or five years ago? I guess we kind of all use each other. What, What I will see categorically is if there's a greater demand, say parenting starts to become a greater demand from the advertisers, means they're seeing some results. It makes sense in the dear media landscape, a lot of new parents, a lot of new moms. Um, I will say, okay, we need to create a greater catalog offering for parents, 
right? So if, if we're bringing on a new parenting expert and we're bringing on a new resource as a, as a show for people who want to learn how to raise their kids better or more effectively, like I will look at the advertisers and say, okay, there's clearly a demand and they're seeing a result. Now let me plug that content hole. Or vice versa, if we see a demand from our audience and they're saying, hey, like we, you know, we've got a ton of career development, but we really want a little bit more wellness. We will say, okay, like who are the best in class wellness creators here? And so we're kind of using the audience and the advertisers to inform, or sometimes we will see a show, you know, say it's like a financial literacy show. Yeah. And we see that one getting a ton of demand. We say, okay, well, maybe the audience is hungry for more of that. And like, then what do, who do we need to find or what do we need to develop to go and service, you know, that area of business? But I think it all boils down to just being very in tune with what the audience is actually requesting from us. Yeah. And also being in tune with the types of creators that are coming through our door. We are constantly listening to yeah. both. You're probably also now at this point getting dozens of people that you say you turn away that are great. That selection matters a lot. And I think what I tell people, the first four people I signed, I cold DM'd on Twitter, basically begging to join. Now we've had a lot of applicants and we reject that. But the mistake was actually not building the brand. It was saying yes to too many too early. So just like the more you say no, win at the ones you have, that demand later comes from the creator side too. Yeah. And we made those mistakes in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think every every new company, I mean, but here's what I will say. We've made more mistakes than we've than we've had wins. It's just we've been able to move past those mistakes rather quickly and, and keep pushing forward. You know, the reason you asked me earlier, like, is it 80 shows? Is it 60? Is it 70? There was probably in the beginning a little bit too much free signing of stuff that we couldn't service properly. And I'm very forthcoming now in the all the different talent conversations where it starts off with one, what's the content perspective? But two, do we feel confident that Dear Media would be a great partner? We've learned a lot and I don't ever want to fall short. I, I'd rather under-promise and over-deliver than, especially, you know, not to call anyone out, but in the world of entertainment, there is a lot of over-promising and under-delivering. And for us, no content creator needs to come to Dear Media if we're just taking a piece of what they already have. We need to be a real value add, whether that's growing their audience, growing their revenue, growing their visibility, providing services that are a pain in the ass for them. Like for for us, it's really like, how do we be of service and create a bigger pie for everybody? Not, hey, we're signing you and taking a percentage of your revenue because nobody wants that. It's the pie conversation through and through. And then Mm -hmm. we always say, I know this is exactly, you've said something similar on your podcast with Lauren, but putting people basically in positions that they are much better at, right? Like there's great producers, there's great hosts that put people in those positions when you're on your own, you're doing it all. And even if you're good at it, there's an opportunity cost sometimes like I should have been doing more. Yeah. And you know, and I think every entrepreneur knows this or knows this, what looks easy is never, never easy, yeah. you know? And um, to your point, it is very easy to set up a microphone and record for 30 minutes, but taking it a step beyond that and producing something successfully for year and year on end and monetizing it and marketing it properly and producing and having good production value and competing at, you know, when Lauren and I started, there was less than half a million podcasts in existence. I think the last stat I read was there's now like five or 6 million. So the way I would suggest people starting then is not what I would say now, you know, back then it was very easy to climb and stand out because there was not a lot of people doing it. Now, you know, you have to be a little bit more thoughtful in your approach. And so I think for us, we try to create an environment where we're going to put the the people we work with in the best position to exhibit that kind of success. Because if not, you might as well self-produce. 
the last kind of thing I wanted to touch on with you is around the talent. And today, there's more kind of even legacy media companies that are saying like, hey, we're going to have a creator program. Fortune has one now. There's a bunch of these. But then a lot of upstarts have also said the same thing. You know, I, I've been asked about talent selection before. Sometimes I have a good answer. Sometimes I don't. I feel like I change my answer all the time. When you sit across from someone, how fast do you know, I think this person has it versus how much do you go dig into the data, the shows, et cetera? If I was going to say anything about myself in a way that I guess could be construed as somewhat bragging, and this goes not only for talent, but for hiring as well, I know very quickly when I think somebody is going to be great in whatever potential that is. Like I, I can sit in this, you know, most I've done job interviews at Dear Media where I've sat with someone for 30 seconds and left because I knew it was the wrong fit and it was, I'm never going to hire them and I don't want to waste their time. And I've also sat with someone for 30 seconds and hired them and they've been here for six years. And I think that is actually the majority of, you know, the, the great success we've had from uh, a team member standpoint, but same with the shows. Like I think Lauren and I have always recognized talent when we see it and potential mostly. And what we've been good at is seeing, is been looking at their uh, talent that is maybe not looked at in that way from other companies or not taken seriously because of whatever positioning and saying, you know, like, no, that is a real star. And then helping them, you know, exhibit that star power to a broader audience. But I think if it's something for anyone, like we all know in our gut, if it's something you're having to convince yourself about, say no, then say no, because Anytime that I've made a hiring decision or signed a show where I've not listened to the gut and I've not, and I've been trying to convince myself, well, if they change this or they do this, it's, it's no. The other thing is, I say this all the time. I only want to work with people that are excited to work with me. I like, I've been in situations where if a show comes to dear media and they, and it's, it's this one-sided conversation where it's like you, if you don't, you have to be doing everything for me and there's no give and take. It's like, you're, you're better off somewhere else. Like I, I have to remind talent all the time. I'm not your agent. I'm not your manager. I don't work for you. We become your partner in the success of this new venture. And I approach it as if you and I were going to do a partnership together, right? Like we're both bringing something to the table. We're both excited. We have good attitudes. So, you know, like I'm fortunate to say that the majority of the, of the people we've worked with have been from that perspective. But, you know, there's some people that candidly have, you know, maybe just not the right fit or using a stronger word assholes that you just don't want to work with. And I think about it all the time. We said this thing just this week. It was, if we had someone that just didn't work out and in general, there was like one, like I call it yellow flag. Like it wasn't like a, oh, asshole, but it was like a little yellow flag of like a comment early in the recruitment process. And we're like going forward, like one yellow flag, it's a no. And that's, it's just like what you have to do. And sometimes in that example, that person was wildly talented. I like believe in their skills. Um, but it's, it's sometimes it, it, to have that real like partnership, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I'm also, and I say this all the time to the internal team here, but I, I've said it externally to me, culture comes first. And I know a lot of people say that, but materially at this point in my life, a, a few extra dollars here and there is not like. It, I, I don't, I'm somebody that need, not, doesn't need a ton. Like I got my wife, I got my kids, I got the home I live in. I have a great group of, like I have all the stuff that I think you need to be satisfied as a human. I'm very competitive. But what I always tell people is like, I don't need the extra headache of dealing with people that I don't want to deal with. And 
if that is happening in the culture where there's somebody who may be an absolute killer at their job, but they have a bad attitude or they're making other people feel poorly or they're dragging the team down or they're always negative, it's like, get out. And same thing with the shows. If you're somebody that thinks they're greater than everyone and they're some star and they're a big name and uh, like go somewhere else. Because at the end of the day, I think you get the best work out of people when they're excited and happy and empowered in the environment that they're in. And it it enables you to have much less oversight and, and you don't have to micromanage people when they're just happy and feeling empowered to do, you know, something they're excited about. And, and so, you know, again, I think it comes down to having a little bit more self-awareness and making sure that you've created an environment where you know what you're producing is valuable. You know, people care about it and you know, the people working on it feel good about working on it. And um, I think some of these companies that are getting in trouble is maybe those environments don't exist, or maybe people aren't as proud of the end result, or maybe they feel it's not as honest as it could be. And again, you may not like everything I say and I'm blunt, but at least, you know, it comes from a direct place. Yeah. Also misaligned incentives, right? Mm -hmm. Like, a big part of this is what's been going on. Like you've cracked that code of, hey, you're going to grow here. You're going to grow faster. You're going to do more. We have this here. The pie is going to be better. The incentive and partnership is very clear. I think this other aspect that's existing and even in new companies that are starting is they're arbitraging the talent that they have and they're doing everything they can to hide that. And the talent's like, well, you're going to treat me this way. I'm going to treat you this way. And that's like the the spiral of, of what, what goes on, I think, in so many of those places. Hundred percent. And you mentioned something earlier, which I just think is really smart to touch on, which compound interest doesn't work in the just work in the world of finance. Compounding is a real thing, right? right? And I have a very long view personally of building a modern media business with that compounding in effect. And so I know that there's people that are going to outpace us in the short run, and I know there's people that are going to hit those viral moments faster than we do at times. But my thought is. If you do this 5, 10, 15, 20 years for an audience that really cares and really comes to trust you, that asset over time is going to be extremely valuable where I think some people are just so beholden to what happens in the next month. Like Anytime someone asks me, what trends do you look for? What viral moments? I, I Honestly, I don't ever look. I don't look at what the next trend is. I couldn't tell you what's going on on TikTok. I try to think about what is going to be just as relevant today as it is tomorrow. And Morgan Housel just came out with that book, Same as Ever, and we just had him on the show and I thought it was so genius because his whole thing is looking for stuff that never changes and behaviors that never change, where we're trained so much now, especially executives and companies, to look for that next trend or that next marketing moment or the next viral moment. And, and like you can't build a business with a strong foundation that way. You have to create long-lasting stuff that people care about. Well, the long-time horizons allows you to do things in a way that in a content business that the audience feels. Because mm-hmm. if you actually tell all your talent, we tell our talent this, I want you to be here for 10 years. What that means is like, you'll have Pat and Matt leave. Like when you have a kid, you're out for four months. If you don't want that advertiser, we have a block list, certain amount of people, yep. all good. We, we do those things. Does it hurt the business in the short term to your point? Like, oh, someone won that deal. I see that brand and we turn them down. Sure. But like, I know their talent. I know their operations are just running on fumes after a few years yep. and because they burned all that, all the, all those bridges. And if you have longer time horizons, you make those business decisions that actually then allow you to win in the long run. Yeah. And if you want to get like tactical from an advertising business perspective, I think a lot of people compete over the same dollars. And because of that, they diminish and discount their product to a point where they can never survive in the future. And I know that we're going to leave dollars on the table. I won't say the, the brands, but there's 
some prominent businesses in the streaming space that came to us and basically wanted a very large buy at a premium discount, huge discount. And we said no. And we lost that business. And I get why we lost that business. But my thing is, if you have a great product that people care about, you deserve to put it in a premium space and you deserve to have brands that want to be aligned with it pay that premium. And if they don't, then that's fine. We'll go somewhere else. But I think Again, to your point about making short-term decisions, I see everyone getting in these discount wars and you're not coming back from that price. You're not, you're not one day worth $5 and the next day worth 30. As soon as you are that cheap product or that cheap price or that cheap content, then that's what you always are. And so for us, I would rather leave short-term dollars on the table to build a premium brand over time that people trust and, and people know is premium as opposed to trying to compete with the phrase of discounters. Yeah, which is also, by the way, a huge reason not to go solo, right? If you want like the best brands and your premium brands, it's almost impossible to do that on your own, right? These podcast networks, like you don't know what, you don't control that. And what's so, it makes me so upset all the time. Newsletters, podcasts, doesn't matter the medium. People put so much energy and effort into the content. And sometimes it's, I'll see it. I'm like, this is so good. You have this terrible fucking advertiser right here. You don't think your audience sees that? You don't think that diminishes that? Like, of course it does. Like, and when I was at Under Armour, I will never forget it. We had about a $4 million deal with a very large startup mattress company that is really well known, but is startup. But Tom Brady, UA's face, did not work with them. He worked with a different company. And they're like, we won't do it because it's not the best for our brand. And I remember like being so mad at the time. I'm like, come on, this is like a huge deal. I look back, I'm like, that's why for 20 years, their brand dominated. They had those strict lines. We live in a really fast-paced world, and there is no shortage of opportunities for people to take shortcuts and to do things that they wouldn't necessarily do if they were thinking about protecting an entity for 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, it requires a lot of discipline because you can have some really tight years, you know? Um, and even if you think about Lauren and I's show, two years of making zero dollars and still putting out the content and the work every week. We, you know, she was op- I was running different companies. She was running her business. Like we, this was. I always joke that the podcast is still the side hustle. You know what I mean? Like we still do yeah. it. We do it three times a, a week now. Yeah. But the company I run day to day is the podcast is still the side hustle. But we always knew that if you built a premium experience and you protected the audience and you protected the the trust that that audience has with you then that would become a valuable asset down the line. To your point, if our audience started seeing us doing things that they know we either didn't believe in or that we knew that we that we just took because of the dollars, I think it's really hard to continue doing something for a long period of time. And so this is this constant balance. And I'm not the first one that talks about having a long view. Um, but as I've grown in my life and my career, like I, I just that's where all the value is, right? It's just like being patient, being humble, staying consistent, not diminishing yourself or your brand. But many people struggle to do that. Yeah. I think for people building media brands, creators, or operators, like as a final note, I think that's the advice uh, and what you guys have done so well. And I appreciate uh, letting me come into the studio and everything everything that you shared. A few people, as, as I've kind of said uh, this season around, I think this has been the masterclass of builders of a season and you guys using audio as a channel, but also putting talent first, content first, 
and long time horizons, I think is is second to none. So well, thank you, man. I appreciate you making the trip to our studio and having me on. And hopefully somebody got some kind of value or learned something there. I think you're going to have a bunch of new, uh, new followers uh, that aren't necessarily in that uh, Gen Z female demographic. So it might be a little different on this one. I always joke. I got a couple guys out there. I know we're most and Lauren and I are mostly speaking to the women, but there's a couple. I know th- I know these guys are sit there. Their girlfriends got it on the background. They're listening. Oh, yeah. They're, they're there. there. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're there. Uh, sm- smoking meat and listening to all a podcast or something. But I appreciate it. And uh, I hope to have you on again. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening. If you want deep insight and hot takes on the world of media, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. I'll see you next time.